0: welcome back to Jonah 3 1 through 4 part 2 and so I just want to open in prayer father I just thank you Lord for your word and I pray that you would just make it come alive to us and that you would just um, keep all the distractions away and prepare our hearts to receive your truth Lord and what we know not teach us and what we have not give us and what we are not make us for Jesus name, amen Okay, we're going to start by singing I Surrender All, and I'm not going to sing it, but I am going to read you the words. All to Jesus I surrender, all to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. I surrender all, I surrender all, all to Thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all, all to Jesus I surrender, humbly at His feet I bow. Worldly pleasures, all forsaken. Take me, Jesus, take me now. All to Jesus I surrender. Make me Savior, holy Thine. Let me feel the Holy Spirit, truly know that Thou art mine. I surrender all. I surrender all. Lord, to Jesus I surrender. I surrender all. Fill me with Thy love and power. Let Thy blessing fall on me. All to Jesus I surrender. Now I feel the sacred flame. Oh, the joy of full salvation. Glory, glory to his name. Okay, I'm going to start out by reading uh, Jonah 3, 1 through 4 again. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city, a city, a visit lasting three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Jonah 3, 1 through 4. Um, I'm going to start out by reading Retake Your Heart. And it's written by um, David Mathis. And it's Five Reasons for Fresh Courage take heart imagine hearing those two words as the disciples often did from the mouth of god himself in the flesh and yet how flat those words can fall when we say to them in our own hearts <laughs> if only we could up and redirect our hearts none of us wants to be down far too often though our hearts seem to lie beyond our reach outside of our control However discouraged you may feel, your flagging heart never fails beyond falls excuse me beyond the reach of Christ. No matter how troubled, how unsettled, how fickle, how disoriented, how despondent, Jesus can handle your ailing heart. There are many sorts of broken hearts, says Charles Spurgeon, and Christ is good at healing them all. Jesus knows the human heart he made it and then he took one himself when he became man he knows as both god and man how to furnish how to furnish fresh courage to a fearful heart he knows how to parcel joy to a sad heart he is adept and proven at giving strength in perfect portion to a weak heart peace to an anxious heart forgiveness to a guilty heart and wholeness to a broken heart And how does he choose over and over to do so? He speaks. What would he have us to do when our hearts are writhing? Rehear his words. He knows your heart. He made our human hearts and souls to respond to the touch of his words with the aid of his spirit. When our strength is low and our faith is failing, he means for us to receive the grace of his words. We are prone in our pain to underestimate the power of his words, to set his words aside for other comforts, whether entertainment or food or drink or work or mere human relationships. We're always trying to fill these, our empty cups with anything but him. When Jesus speaks to us, one of the most common and distinctive words we hear is take heart. He doesn't say follow your heart, but t- rather take heart. Take them from the pit, from the subtle and seemingly inescapable delusions they are under and, rem- and remind them of who he is, what he has done and what he will do. He rolls back the stone and speaks into the tomb of our souls. He creates what he commands. As he says, with sovereign sway, take heart. In particular, the Gospels give us five concrete instances of Jesus saying, take heart. Each comes with a precious, powerful, timeless reason that shows us how the words of Jesus work to bolster our weary souls. He who says, take heart, says I am. Matthew 14 and Mark 6 report one of the most stunning events of the ministry of Christ, a peculiar miracle reserved for his disciples. It was not a healing with an accompanying word, but simply a striking revelation of who he is. He had sent his men along in a boat to the other side of the sea while he stayed behind to pray. On water, the disciples were met with fierce winds and were unable to make headway. Then in the middle of the night, Jesus comes to him walking on the water. But when the disciples saw him on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Their hearts were deeply shaken. They were terrified. They cry out in fear. But Jesus speaks a word to them, Take heart. It is I. Don't be afraid. Literally, the words, Take heart, I am. Is what he's saying, which has a double meaning. It is I, Jesus, whom you know, and I am the great I am, just as God used those words described in Moses. As when Moses asked for God's name and said, I am he, I am who I am. So Jesus now declares to his disciples, I am. When Jesus tells us to take heart, he does not do so unless Excuse me, let me start again. When Jesus tells us to take heart, he does so as God himself. I am God, and there is no other, he says. I am your creator. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am God himself, made human, dwelling among you. And I am for you. Do not be afraid. You are under my watch and my care. And no storm, however great, can snatch Any power from from my power and my protection. So you just take heart. He is. Number two, you have the attention of God himself. Not only is God himself in full humanity, but if you claim Jesus is Lord, you know he has taken notice of you. And he is calling on you. You are his. Mark 10 tells us of a blind beggar who was sitting along the roadside, having hoped Jesus would pay some attention to him. When he heard Jesus finally coming near, he begins to cry out, Jesus, Son of God, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. The crowd saw it with such great annoyance, particularly his disciples. Many rebuked him, telling them, just be quiet, be silent. But Jesus took notice. He was annoyed. He was not annoyed, excuse me. Instead of pushing the crowd away, he drew them in and directed them to extend the invitation to the man. I love them. Call him. And so they turn to the blind men and they say, take heart on your feet. He's calling you. Take heart on your feet. He's calling you. This is a good day. And every person that's within my hearing, take heart on your feet. He is calling you. Take heart. He sees you. He hears you. He's not inattentive to your pleas, even though your eyes cannot see him. His are fixed on you. In the midst of the bustling crowd, you have his attention and you have his invitation. He is calling to you and moving toward you to heal, to bless, to extend his grace and compassion and mercy to you. Take heart. He's calling you. Number three, your sins are forgiven. And while this is lengthy, y'all, this is just such a powerful essay that i just having to read it to y'all because every time I read it, I get moved, as you can see. Twice in Matthew 9, Jesus says, Take heart, first to the paralyzed, and he affectionately calls my son, then to an old woman called daughter. I particularly like that because I am an old woman. The paralytic couldn't get himself to Jesus. But his friends brought him. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. To be forgiven by God himself is one of the greatest gifts imaginable. Hmm, for sure. How prone are we to take forgiveness lightly, as if God owed it to us, as if his pardon were somehow our right, and how much discontent in our lives might be dispelled If we took more seriously deep down in our souls, the spectacular grace of his forgiveness. We are all sinners by birth and by choice. And, And in our sin, our omnipotent wrath of God stood justly against us. It is an indescribably terrible doom. And yet God in sheer magnificent mercy did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us that we might be forgiven. Are infinitely heinous capital offenses against the most valuable person of the universe. Your sins are forgiven. is only trite to those who gravely underestimate their own sin and tragically misunderstand the glory of forgiveness. The more we know ourselves forgiven and forgiven so much, the more difficult it will be for roots of discontent to grow in the soul of our souls. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. You are cleansed. You have been washed with the blood. Number four, you need not rely on yourself any more. Later in Matthew 9, he says, Take heart to a daughter as a local ruler rushes Jesus off to raise his 12 year old daughter. Jesus makes time in this frantic chaos to turn to a woman who had suffered a discharge of blood for 12 years. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you and made you well. And instantly, instantly, reports Matthew, the woman was made well. Faith of all things, not your goodness. Not your doing, not your virtue, not your deserving faith. The peculiarly receiving virtue. The peculiarly receiving virtue, as Andrew Fuller called it. It is a reason to take heart. Jesus' words, take heart, is not based on our skill set. Praise God. Improving record. Jesus doesn't bid us to look inward and take heart. There's nothing in there worthy Rather, he says, to look outward, look upward, such is the nature of faith, to see him outside ourselves, the ground of our courage and the reason for truth. Jesus' call to faith is not a summons to muster our own strength, but to lean on his. The call to faith is not a challenge to dig down deep inside, but an invitation to rest in the, in the power of outside of us and in him. Take heart, my daughter. Your faith has made you well. I love the, the, the verse in Deuteronomy says, Let the beloved of the Lord rest secure in him, for he shields him all day long, and the one the Lord loves rests between his shoulders. And lastly, five, your God has already overcome. Finally, John sixteen thirty three, may the best known and most sweeping of Jesus's take heart statements. In the upper room, in the night before he died, he says to his disciples at the end of the farewell discourse, I have said these things to you, that in me, in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Many of us have been caught off guard against all of a sudden, and we've we've come of an age, realize the extent and depths of the fallenness of of our world. For sure, tribulation is not a misfortune of some, but a promise for all. It's just a matter of time. In the world, you will have trouble. At least intermittently, if not constantly, Jesus does not want his people to be surprised by the enormous, gut-wrenching pain of this present age. For he says, what a glorious contrast, what good news follows, the great contrast out of the mouth of God. You were dead, and you were separated, but, and here, you will have tribulation, but take heart, downcast soul don't miss this weary heart pay attention to the promise that follows rightly here and understood this will give you courage this will be truth to rehearse again and again this will be a reality to regularly remind yourself especially when you when your heart is weak and fearful and your courage is faltering take this truth to mind take it afresh into your soul and take heart, he has overcome the world. His promise doesn't mean the punch of the present won't lay us horribly down. It doesn't mean the pain will not be real and awful and even suffocating at times. It doesn't mean we won't feel battered by wave after relentless wave of hardship and frustration and loss. But it does mean the present shadow will pass. Night is already far gone. The day is at hand. He has overcome the world, and his triumph will eventually be worked out into every nook and cranny of our living. In him, not only is the clock ticking on our tribulation, but also right now in the midst of it, he is pounding it out for our good. Amazing essay. Okay, so back to... to, um, Uh, Jonah 3 1 through 4. Scripture now tells us in Jonah 3 1. Then the word came to Jonah a second time. Jonah, listen to this. Jonah could rightly state, as the prophet Micah stated in Micah 7 8, Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness, Micah 7, 8 through 9. You don't have to read very far in your Bibles to discover that God forgives his servants. And restores them to ministry. When famine came, Abraham fled to Egypt, where he lied about his wife. But God gave him another chance. Genesis 12, 10 through through 13, 4. Jacob lied to his father Isaac, but God restored him and used him to build the nation of Israel. Moses killed a man, probably in self-defense, and fled from Egypt but God called him to be the leader of his people. Peter denied the Lord three times, but Jesus forgave him and said, Follow me, and subsequently used him to build his church. It is never too late to turn to the Lord, never. As Corey Timboon once quipped, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. However encouraging these examples of restoration may be, they must never be used as excuses for sin. The person who says, "Mm, I can go ahead and sin because I know the Lord will forgive me. I'm, I'm his child. has no understanding either for the awfulness of sin nor for the holiness of God. Paul writes in Romans 6, 15 through 18, What then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone to obey him as slaves, you are a slave to the one whom you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God (laughs) that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the, f- the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Again, that's Romans 6, 15 through 18. Sin always separates us from a holy God who loves us with an undying love and who also rejoices over us with singing. We break this fellowship when we persist in going our own stubborn ways, always to our own harm, and it's never for our good. But God's ways are for us. They're not against us, even if we cannot readily perceive that or not. Remember as well that God, in his grace, forgives our sins, but God in his government determines that we shall reap what we sow. And the harvest can be very costly and bitter indeed. Jonah paid dearly for rebelling against the Lord. God expects his people to carry out the mission assignments he gives to each of us. And by the way, without murmuring murmuring, and complaining. Oh, of course, grumbling has no place for the child of the king. Mm. Jonah's narrow patriotism And his disdain towards the Assyrians had caused him to go against God's revealed will for his life. God loves the world so much, all the world, that he seeks to save it by leading the lost to repentance from their sin and rebellion and turning them to a committed life of love and obedience. God was at work in Nineveh and he wanted Jonah to join him in the work there. That's what he asked further. He wanted Jonah to go give out a warning to them to pray and plead for them just as Abraham was willing to do for Sodom and Gomorrah. We find that story in Genesis 18, 16 through 33. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached my ears or me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous? people that are in it far be it from you to do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked treating the righteous and the wicked alike far be it from you will not the judge of all the earth do right the lord said if i find 50 righteous people in the city of sodom i will spare the whole place for their sake Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, "For the sake of forty, I will not do it." Then he said, "May the Lord not not be angry, but let me speak. What if only thirty can be found there?" He answered, "I will not do it if I find thirty there." Abraham said, "Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only twenty can be found there?" He said. For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left. And Abraham returned home. Genesis 18 16-33. Abraham was willing to plead for those righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, and God desired for Jonah to warn and plead for the Assyrians as well. But that was not on Jonah's wish list, to be sure. He had other things on his agenda, like prophesying good news to the Israelites, like being a prophet that was applauded and looked up to By all the Israelites, we so often make the mistake of running ahead of God and asking him to bless our hands to the endeavors we decide to be involved with instead of having him lead us where God wants. He is working and joyfully join in with him there. Oftentimes, sadly, we simply don't want the pain or the problems, or even the bother of it. We're so busy with our own doings, we neglect God's plans and ways, again, always to our own harm. God promises victory to those who endure, so he gives us enough strength, usually just enough strength, so faith is still required to keep us going. He wants us to succeed and not give up, in the, faith, in the walk of faith, we can't afford to doubt, worry, fear, or complain. The very symptoms that kept a generation of the Israelites out of the promised land. All of these attitudes severely undermine God's work on our behalf. Not because he can't do whatever he wants, but because he has chosen to relate to us on the basis of our faith. Negative attitudes and words undermine faith, always. They devalue the very currency we have to use in God's kingdom. Wherever God's voice and your faith are leading you, do not be afraid or dismayed. That was written by Chris Tagreen. Another quote is, I have rightfully no other business each day but to do God's work as a servant, constantly regarding his pleasure. May I have grace to live above every human motive, simply with God and to God. That's Henry Martin. Yet another, there is no use in running before you are sent. There is no use in attempting to do God's work without God's power. A man working without this unction, a man working without this anointing, a man working without the Holy Ghost upon him, is losing time after all, that's Dwight L. Moody. God gave Jonah his marching orders. And this time, the Lord wasn't as specific. He merely tells the prophet to go to the great city of Nineveh and to proclaim the message that he would give him. Hmm. Interestingly, in his uh, recommission, of the of the sky of the prophet god did not repeat the reason for the proclamation this time our prophet obeyed god's word and set out for nineveh obedience is the key in the life of the believer obedience is always the key as it demonstrates our trust in knowing him his ways are always the best for us the prophet Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me, upon me, and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. All sin is captivity. Being outside of his will is all captivity. Believers who know Christ understand that delight and faith are so wonderfully united that the gates of hell cannot manage to separate them. Those who love God with all their hearts find that his ways are ways of pleasantness, And all his paths are peace. The saints discover in Christ such joy, such overflowing delight, such blessedness, that far from serving him from custom, they would follow him, even though the whole world rejected him. We do not fear God because of any compulsion. Our faith is no shackle. Our profession is no bondage. We're not dragged to holiness nor driven to duty. No, our piety is our pleasure. Our hope is our happiness. Our duty is our delight. This is, of course, Spurgeon, who is verbose, like I've been told I have. Next, we discover that Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and headed toward Nineveh finally Jonah smart move interestingly the word translated obeyed is uh, from the Hebrew um, word meaning to rise up and take dramatic action and rise up take dramatic action he did Jonah didn't want to end up in the belly of the whale again God delights in our instant obedience Indeed, delayed obedience is disobedience. Scripture tells us in First Samuel 15, 22-23a, but Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry." That's First Samuel 15:22 through23A. Another quote is, "Holiness is not a feeling. It is the end product of obedience. Purity is not a gift. It is the result of repentance and serious pursuit of God." Francis J. Roberts. Four times in the book of Jonah, Jonah, Nineveh is called a great city. And archaeologists tell us that the adjective is well-deserved. It was great in history, having been founded in ancient times by Noah's great-grandson Nimrod. It was also great in size. The circumference of the city and its suburbs was probably 60 miles, and from the Lord's uh, statement in Jonah 4:11, we could infer that it was quite populated. Uh, some, comment, some commentators state about 600,000 cells all in need of Jesus. One wall of the city had a circumference of eight miles and boasted 1,500 towers. The city was great in splendor and in influence, and it was one of the leading cities of the powerful Assyrian Empire. It was built near the Tigris River, and it had the Koser River running through it. Its merchants traveled the empire and brought great wealth into the city. And Assyria's armies were feared greatly everywhere. They were very mean. Sadly, Nineveh was steeped in sin as well. The Assyrians were known far and wide for their violence and their cruelty. They showed no mercy to their enemies. As we discussed this before, they were unbelievably cruel. They would impale live victims on sharp poles, leaving them to just roast to death in the desert sun. And they, behead, they beheaded people just by the thousands and stacked their skulls up in piles by the city can't, gates. Just can't imagine how disgusting the, these people had been. They would skin people alive. They respected neither age nor sex. And they followed a policy of killing babies and young children so they would not have to care for them. It was to these wicked people of this large city that God sent his servant, Jonah, assuring him that he would give him his message to speak. Oh, the amazing mercy of our God, who desires none to perish, but all to come to repentance. Paul tells us in Romans 2, 4. Pause right there. It's going too slow. Yeah, it's going way, it's here. way too I slow. I feel bad for you. Yeah, thank I know. you. I was like, good Lord, what has happened? I know, I just... And that... And memorize whatever bump that is. hundred, I've got it at a hundred, so let's see if that works. What were you just at? Eighty-five. Let's try ninety-five. Oh, 100 might work, I don't know. All right. You want me to try it? Yeah, bump up a little bit, start with Romans. Okay. Romans 2. Right here. You want me to start over the... No, just from Paul tells okay. us Romans 2, 4. Okay. Paul tells us in Romans 2, 4, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you? Towards repentance, Romans 2, 4. Peter echoes that in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years, like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3 8 through 9. Jonah had time available to meditate on what the Lord had taught him. This is a very important point. God is all about teaching his children right where they are, and it is his desire for us to meditate on what he is teaching us chew it like a cow chewing cud to assimilate it in order to manifest it to flesh it out his teaching is our is to change our lives not merely to give us head knowledge that always puffs up we're not to remain the same the sit soak and sour mentality he is all about conforming us into the image of his son And I dare go go out on a limb to say that I don't think any of us have met that high mark yet. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 119, 9 through 16, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Psalm 119, 9 through 16. The will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you and the power of God cannot use you. Our confidence and competence is from God. As Paul states in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God, the aroma of Christ, among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we have the smell of death, but to the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? 2 Corinthians two, fourteen through 16. And again in 2 Corinthians 3, five through six A Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Second Corinthians three, five through six. Lastly we see him Entering Nineveh, Jonah is entering Nineveh, claiming to be the God God's prophet and confronting thousands of people with this strange message of judgment. How could a Jew, who worshipped the true God, ever get these idolatrous Gentiles to believe what he had to say, especially with using only these eight words? Forty. More days and Nineveh will be overturned. Not too great a sermon, Jonah 3-4. From a human perspective, Jonah's entire endeavor appears ridiculous, does it not? From the great fish experience to the weak and lame proclamation, resulting in a huge subsequent revival in Nineveh, the story goes from one amazing phenomenon to another. Certainly, for all Jonah knew, chances were as good for him that he might have ended up on, impaled on one of those pole, poles or skinned alive for, you know, as they were for a revival. But in obedience to the Lord, he obeyed. It took him three days to visit all the area of Nineveh because it was no insignificant place. His message was brief, as previously stated. God gave him 40 days. Throughout Scripture, the number 40 seems to be identified with testing or judgment. During the time of Noah, it rained 40 days and 40 nights. The Jewish spies explored Canaan 40 days, and the nation of Israel was tested in the wilderness 40 years. The giant Goliath taunted the army of Israel 40 days. And the Lord gave the people of Nineveh 40 days to repent and turn from their wickedness. Jonah's message does not seem to leave any room for discussion. God will destroy Nineveh. It seemed inevitable and decisive. At this point, it would have been interesting to know more of Jonah's um, ministry to Nineveh. Was this the only message that he had proclaimed? Surely he told the people more about the true and living God. Yet all we know for sure is that Jonah obeyed God and went to Nineveh and declared the message God had given him to declare. And God did the rest as God always does. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just thank you so much for Jonah's final obedience. Help us to be obedient, Lord. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of your gospel. Help us to listen to your still, small voice always for our good, Lord, and for your glory never one surpassing the other. We just thank you and love you and pray that we would be vessels worthy of of, of, um, such a high calling. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Beth from Sharing Bread Ministries. You're welcome to pass this message along to others, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the written permission from Sharing Bread. This content has been provided to you free of charge by the generous supporters of Sharing Bread. For additional information on Sharing Bread, you can look for us online at sharing-bread.com. You can find Bible teachings for adults and kids, links to podcasts and other resources to help you grow in the Lord. Again, that website is sharing-bread.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in touch with Sharing Bread. Sharing Bread, laboring to grow up families in Christ.